I don't want to make sculptures that are designed and then built. And it's, it's one of the important reasons I work with a team and it's all in-house as opposed to, you know, other artists might design something and then you, you send it to a fabricator. Um, I like to be able to leave a lot unfinished in the thinking of a piece until you're halfway through with it. Mm-hmm. And, and so you need to have, that needs to be in-house and you need to, to be making that with people that you can have a lot of trust with and that you want to give agency to. That was artist and sculptor John Grady, whose work exists in the intersection of art, education, and advocacy. Influenced by the environment and human impact on it, there's a specific attention paid to the idea of impermanence. He often destroys his art as part of its showing or exhibition, because art, like life, is temporary. Both are a journey that rarely turns out how you'd expect, so it's important to embrace change. To achieve this vision, John believes in the power of collaboration, that the inclusion of different perspectives always benefits and improves a project, that more people involved means more minds thinking through complex issues and ideas. So here he is, John Grady. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. John, as I was doing my research on you, I came across photos of your studio, which looks really cool. For someone who might not be familiar with your studio, could you describe it and what goes on there? Well, sure. Um, so there's, I'm assuming that you're talking about a, a large main studio where I work with the, my team. So I have a, a team of 15 people right now, and we all work on these uh, sculpture projects together. And it's in an old, um, fairly dilapidated, but, but wonderful warehouse. And um, we have about eight or 9,000 square feet, most of which is one large uninterrupted space. But then there's sort of a couple of little warrens where computer work happens and we've got booths to do things and isolate different materials. Um, and then I have a, a smaller studio that I built thinking it was going to be, you know, my dream studio, but um, it's too small for my team. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I do use that, but that's more um, a place where I just do kind of quiet experimenting and drawing and make tests and things like that. So I kind of alternate between the more social space and then the quiet space. And what is your process with each studio, you know, working with volunteers, fabrication, wood, things like that? It's, it's, um, it's going in a lot of different directions and it keeps evolving and changing. Um, you, you kind of hit on the volunteer model, um, with COVID that's really pulled back, but that's been a a really, really rich way to work. We, um, have done a number of projects. I think the one that we got most deeply into volunteers was with, was with a project called Middle Fork, which is a, a sculpture based on the form of a tree that we cast, a, a living tree. And we had about, in the end, 4,000 people come in and help us work on that. So each person would come in for four or five hours and work. And some people would come back and work multiple times. And we worked on that piece for more than a year. What do you think is the benefit of having so many people work on a single project? Well, I think everybody brings a little piece of their story to it. And 
for some that's going to be more overt and for others it's going to be quieter um so i think an example with this middle fork project is there were a couple of people they're asked to put these small pieces of wood you kind of slightly carve and shape each one and glue them together against a mold that we made so we're trying to recreate the form based of this mold so most people make subtle decisions about how they carve and shape and add but a couple of people took the extra step of looking for wood. This is all wood that had been salvaged mm -hmm. that had these beautiful um, dark black rust stains. So they ended up making sections with these black areas. So there's an example of somebody who's bringing a kind of a very overt creative intention that comes through to everybody, um, which is a little more unusual. How often does someone bring something to a project that surprises you? It would really surprise me if they don't. <laughs> so I just kind of turned that around. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's just such wonderful stories. You know, we we would have all of these people working, and it's not until months later that I find out that 25 of these people who I'd gotten to know were all part of an extended grief group. Mm -hmm. You know, so so they're all kind of working through some kind of issues, and they're really using the process to to just sort of go through in in, in a sort of a um, a non-language sort of way, what it is that they're trying to work through. And then kind of the other end of that continuum, there's this one young woman, she was just great. It became very clear after her third or fourth visit that she was bringing a different guy with her each time. So she's got, she's vetting her dates through the process. <laughs> and, and so, you know, finally I, I'm a seventh or eighth guy kind of stuck and came with her each week and, and eventually they got married. So it was kind of fun. Oh, that's great. So that one worked out. It did, finally. <laughs> How does it feel when you see things like that to be able to facilitate an area where things like that happen? It feels really good, and it also doesn't feel like something that I can really take all that much credit for because it's it's this chemistry. Like I, I have an idea, but even even the idea of how that project and other projects like it work are, are really a product of me having conversations with the, the people I collaborate with, like within my team mm -hmm. or different types, you know, cause I, I work with structural engineers and people that help do technical things, software things. So it's, it's, it seems like it's so much about conversations now that I'm having collaboratively with people instead of one person in a room coming up with ideas and implementing them. Mm -hmm. So I feel like your work exists in this intersection of art education and advocacy does that sound right i think so yeah and, it, and i don't know how i got there you know <laughs> I, I, I don't think it was such a such an intersection when i started you know when i when i started out of art school and first having um, my work go out into the world it was much more sitting in a studio really with no interaction for a year or two, putting out a body of work and then having a lot of interaction for a couple of weeks and then going back in that cycle. So there's been a really big shift. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the art you create? Well, I tend to focus on my overarching interest and inspiration, which is to do with the natural world. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of, I, I begin with that and then thinking about how do we viscerally think about the natural world? So if, if I can make sculpture that relates to people's bodies in a, in a certain way, and that's, that's a lot of what drives the large scale 
with my projects. Mm -hmm. So that's where I kind of begin, but there are a lot of different ways to think about it, I suppose. You know, I, I want to talk for a second about materials that you use. Okay. How important are the types of material materials you use and what they ultimately represent or mean to a certain project? Well, uh, it's a great question. Uh, they mean a lot to me. And, and so the material can even drive why I wanted to make the project. Um, wood has been a real kind of constant thread in terms of a material that I'm interested in. But the wood generally has um, an interesting story. So it's been salvaged, for instance. We did a, a, a large piece for the Anchorage Museum um, based on Arctic landforms called Pingos. Mm -hmm. And all of the Alaskan yellow cedar for that was salvaged from the Tongass National Forest. And it had been standing dead for 100 years before we even got it. So it had this wonderful backstory. Um, and, then, and then sometimes the material follows just strictly a kind of a function. Um, I, I did a piece uh, called The Elephant Bed, which was based on geology in, in the UK, calcium deposits. And um, I needed the materiality of the sculpture to disintegrate once it came into contact with water. So I, I kind of found this interesting polymer that did just that. Uh, so sometimes it, it, the material is based on it, it needing to perform a certain way. Maybe, you know, it's kinetic or needs to disappear, disintegrate. You mentioned the, the project that had to do with a pingo. What is a pingo? A pingo, I kind of think of pingos as like a skin condition on the landscape. They, they're these, um, the pingos that I was uh, exploring are um, on the North Slope. They're all in, in Arctic Alaska. And you, I explored them always in the summer. So you kind of have these expansive, very, very flat um, bog lands. And then rising up on them are these little hills, relatively speaking little. The, a, a pingo slowly emerges. It's, um, it's, a, it's really a lens of ice that pushes up through the, the surface of the permafrost. And it starts as just a little two foot hill. And, and then after a thousand years, it'll be 150 feet high and as much as a thousand feet across. And then it collapses in on itself. So I was fascinated because they're very remarkable um, features of the landscape and they're significant as archaeological sites, you know, because people use them to, to be able to see as do predators. So you find all sorts of interesting things on top of pingos. But I, I became really interested in what it would be like to be inside a pingo just as it was collapsing. Because at the end of a pingo's life and as it's about to collapse, there's a huge void in that ice, ice lens in the center and it folds in on itself. So I wanted to make a sculpture where I put viewers inside the sculpture and then I wanted the sculpture to collapse on them. Of course, not hurting them. <laughs> <laughs> and And... Um, you know, trying to figure out how to do that, uh, went through a lot of different iterations of thought. And, and in the end, uh, I was actually standing looking at a pingo and had a wonderful moment where um, you've probably seen a murmuration of starlings at some point in your life. Most people have where all the birds start flying in a group in unison and they mm -hmm. turn and move. and They make these beautiful forms. Yeah. Well, as I was looking at one of these Arctic pingos, um, a huge murmuration of Arctic birds 
made a, a beautiful form of the pingo behind the pingo. And so there was, there was this kind of aha moment. And, and I, I realized I wanted to take the experience of this art, this, this sort of geologic time frame of the pingo collapsing, which is very slow and um, match it with the fleeting beauty of these, these Arctic birds making that form that only lasted a couple of seconds. So I took those two things to create this, this sculpture project, which was called Murmur. And it sounds like that project was a pretty immersive experience. It was very immersive, um, both in, in that you entered inside. You could, you could walk around and there were great vantages from above of the sculpture. Mm -hmm. But then you, you'd enter inside and it was kinetic. It was all made of Alaskan yellow cedar, but there was also a um, we fabricated a, a steel structural skeleton that enabled it all to kinetically move with hydraulics and pneumatics. So it did open up and fold in on itself and collapse while you were in it. And there was another layer, which was a really beautiful layer of um, an augmented reality experience um, using these Microsoft HoloLens headsets. And I've been using those to design sculpture because to be able to look at um, what you're going to make as a hologram that's scalable is an incredibly useful design tool. But mm -hmm. I collaborated with an artist named Riley Donovan um, who created artistic content that was holographic that that was both inside and outside the sculpture. So for those people who um, at the museum put on these headsets, you'd have you know half a dozen people with the headsets on simultaneously. It, the headset's really just a clear visor with a uh, processor on the back of the visor uh, on the top of your head. Mm -hmm. So you don't have any cords or anything, and you're you're just looking around at everything in reality. So unlike um, virtual reality, where an entire invented landscape is in your vision, you're just seeing normal normal environment, but then you have the hologram superimposed and added to your environment. So he... He took a lot of the, the field um, video and stills that I took up in the Arctic and translated it into fragments of ice and pools of water and really interesting things that are related to the sculpture. What do you think is the benefit of an immersive experience like that? Well, I think what it helps us to do is to just kind of recalibrate, rethink our relationship to the natural world. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have it, even New Yorkers and people in London and Tokyo. You, I like the idea that if, if you go into one of these immersive sculpture experiences, you might just pause at the subway or on your way to the subway and look at a tree that you've gone by every day and, and just give it some new thoughts and new consideration. So just reconnecting us with a natural world in a different way. You know, what kind of stories or messages do you think you're trying to tell through your art? Well, I think that that it's a really rich vein, um, and I want to be really careful with it that I don't sort of lead with the story mm -hmm. um, or message and make that something that um, is sort of a little bit too tightly defined for people. I really like... I like people to come in and have a, an experience with their bodies and with their senses and that that sort of awakens a sense of questioning what some of that that kind of maybe um, conceptual desire or drive is mm -hmm. and, and then kind of come to that place. Um, so I really like it if, if, if people sort of 
respond um, in that sort of way. And then, and then maybe they might do a little bit of reading about some of the intentions or maybe they don't even need to do that. They'll come away with, with, with a sense of the story that they're getting from the project. And each, each project has a, a, a very clear narrative arc in terms of why it was created for me and then what I'm hoping people will, will experience. But I, I'm also really perfectly happy if people don't have that experience I'm hoping for, so long as they do have an interesting connection to a, some sense of narrative. You don't want to superimpose your ideas into their minds. Exactly. I, I, want, I want my ideas to be really secondary to the experience. You know, that's really interesting because I think that there are so many directors of movies, for instance, where they're asked during interviews, you know, what's what's the meaning behind this movie or what does the ending mean? Mm-hmm. And they don't give it up because then it would paint other viewers um, their perception of what it is. And then that would ultimately just become the official, you know, meaning behind the whole movie. I It's, it's a great way and a great analogy. And I think... It, the, something about this relates to your earlier question about why make something immersive. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're in an immersive experience, you're not able to take the totality of it and sort of come to a kind of resolution. So that that also leaves it a, a nice open-ended um, aspect of, of how you can experience it. Mm-hmm. One thing that I read about your work that I thought was interesting is that your art piece titled Ford was intentionally buried and then it was eaten by termites. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what went into that project? Well, um, so I started down that vein of inquiry with the idea because I was very interested in how things die and fall apart. And I was pretty young. I mean, this is in my twenties. Um, and, and so I started thinking about materials and how materials break apart. And because wood was something I was most familiar with, I started mail ordering different wood eating insects. You could Mm -hmm. get these things from the Carolinas. So millipedes, beetles, uh, a termite colony, and and just looking at how they would break down wood in in terraria that I kept in my studio. And um, they did escape. Um, and it was just, it, it was both, both just trying to keep them alive or keep them from escaping. And, and they just, I couldn't get the critical mass of numbers I needed. And I just had an aha moment, which was that I need to create these things and bring them out into the insect environment. Mm-hmm. So that's why I ended up burying, um, I, the, the fold project was really three sculptures and, the first one I made um, was based on a set of assumptions about what would happen when I buried it. And I spent a couple of years in, oh, I think it was seven different Western states looking for the most aggressive termites. And I, I buried little samples and I was working with wood and polymers that would kind of uh, laminate together. Cause I know that the wood once buried, isn't going to have the structural integrity. So the, the resins did have that structural integrity. And so the first large one that I made, I buried, um, and it's been in the ground now for 15 years. And I thought I'd just have to leave it there for 10, but I think it's going to be closer to 30 years. <laughs> so um, a lot of patience, but they are doing their work. Um, that piece is, is pretty large. And, and what I did is before I buried it, I showed it in New York. Um, I sh- showed it in a couple of different venues, and then it's buried. And then the idea is that it'll come back and we'll show it again. 
Um, the, the second iteration in the project, I buried half of it and the other half is in a, it's a commission for a public library. So one day when I exhume the other half, we'll slide it underneath the, the half that wasn't buried and you'll have a nice kind of comparison. Do you have any idea or care to venture what that piece of art will look like once you unbury it? Oh yeah. I, I have a, I have a real, or when I set out to do this, I had a real clear idea of what I thought it would look like and what I wanted it to look like, which was that you'd have, it's this, it's this grid of wood with this clear polymer between a lot of it. And I, and I imagined it would look like somebody took an enormous shotgun with very small birdshot and blew all kinds of holes through it which would be impossible because that would have to have impacted the resin. So it's not looking like that at all. <laughs> so I can have my own like fantasy and that's fine. It's, it's, it's actually, instead of little holes, it's these sort of little, little meandering tunnels. So you don't see clear sight lines through anything. Um, so it's different. And I don't, I don't know what it'll look like when, when it's truly been digested, you know, in, in this way, but mm -hmm. that's one of the things I love. It's, it's like, for me, this is all getting to make experiments and seeing what happens. I really like how you destroy your art <laughs> as part of the showing or exhibition. Is this, is this normal? Is this a normal thing for you to do? Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, what's it's really, I feel so fortunate and because I've, I've moved, when making very large scale subjects, uh, sculpture projects, it can be hard to rely on museum support. You know, museums, they don't have the greatest funding often. And so sometimes these things really need to be funded by municipalities or um, large companies. You know, I'm doing a, a large piece right now for Microsoft. Um, I just did a piece for an airport. You know, those sorts of venues where there are a lot more resources. And the reason I feel so fortunate is that um, these types of entities are actually open to your making something that's going to fall apart mm -hmm. in a way that 20 years ago, no way, you know, there just, there wasn't that open mind and, and it has to, it has to fall apart in an interesting way, you know, yeah. and it, it, it probably needs to stay together for a certain length of time. But, but also I think there's a recognition that just as we're not going to last forever, why does, you know, there's a lot of art being made. So if, if art has a life of 10, 20, 30 years, that's great. You know, and then it, if, if it goes away in some way and makes room for something else, that's probably more interesting than something that we're trying to preserve for hundreds of years. Earlier, you said that you didn't purposely count on your art existing in an intersection of art, education, and advocacy. Do you know how you eventually ended up there though? Yeah, I think that I, when I started making my art, I was approaching things in a much more compartmentalized way. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have always loved being outdoors. I love rock climbing, mountaineering, um, you know, being in the water. And so I sort of had that time and then I had my studio time. And in the beginning I had a, how do I make money time? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and as I learned that I could bring all these things together, then things like how I feel about social issues or, or, or what's important to me politically, it, it just needs to become part of the work. And, 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 and as we touched on, it doesn't need to be, you know, a flashing neon sign. You can kind of approach some of these concepts and ideas, um, through a side door when you're communicating with people with, with visual art, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, something that I just thought of. And it gets back to 
you know, you destroying your art <laughs> is what do you think that accomplishes or conveys? Well, I, I mean, on its really most fundamental level, it just puts us in touch with the fact that we are impermanent. Um, and that, that's, that gets easier to think of, or it just becomes more tangible as you get older. <laughs> so you relate to that concept, but, but also just so many things in our lives. It's like we live in houses and they fall apart and we keep trying to fix them up. And, you know, and we look at, we look at the broadest picture of, of what we're doing to this planet and how it's changing and evolving. And so beyond the trajectory of something being alive and then dying and disintegrating, it's about embracing change in, in cyclical change and mm -hmm. the fact that just nothing is is set you know it's just happening in, on different time scales it might be geologic time scales but everything's moving and changing and i just think that's interesting did your art look any different or similar when you were younger yeah both things um so the, you know, working three-dimensionally was sort of where I started. And then I became a two-dimensional person and then it came back into three dimensions. Um, and then also it was sort of overtly political as a teenager. Um, and then it became much less so. And now that's an important element to me. So I found a way to make that a piece of it without it being a teenager piece of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and interestingly enough, even scale um, as a little guy, scale was a pretty important thing that I was making things that was larger than I, I was. But I think a real constant through all of it is a love of drawing and that drawing is a critical part of, of making and thinking about the sculpture. What do you mean just a second ago when you said a teenager piece of it? Oh, just that um, I was sort of, with the political part of what I was doing, you know, I, I was really upset about what Reagan and his cronies were doing in Central America. So, you know, I was, I was making um, figurative work that, that really clearly spoke to the, the shapes of Nicaragua, El Salvador. Um, I guess it was, when I think of it being a teenager thing, it was work that was much more narrow in how people are likely to interpret it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a, that's a, a, that's just kind of a developmental stage. Maybe that's what I mean by saying teenager. Okay. So they were more like, um, maybe transparent, like allusions to things that are happening in like current political spheres. Exactly. And now you just include those, those same elements, but less overt. Yeah, it's so, so that you can arrive at, at those issues through much more nuanced and open channels. Mm -hmm. You know, like one of the pieces I'm coming up to Anchorage um, in, in a few weeks, and it's to continue this series of works where I'm interested in putting pieces of the sculpture in the path of wildfires. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, the wildfires do different, I mean, of course, they, they burn aspects of it, but also... Um, there's an interesting phenomena in certain types of trees, especially gnarled trees that grow slowly in brutal landscapes where they, they have a certain kind of coiled energy in them so that if they're called widow makers by arborists, so that if you go to cut one and you release that tension, it'll sort of snap at you and, and hurt you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of interested in ex- exploring what kind of energy I can, I can um, both kind of put into these pieces that will be released as well as the energy coming from the landscape to them. And, and so for me, um, I really like the idea of, of bringing the subject of wildfires and, and what's going on in terms of, of climate change into a museum context for us to think about, but not in a sort of a way of like, okay, here are all these horrible statistics and, and, and all this to do with language um, and culture, but instead, wow, here are these charred objects. I feel this visceral quality of what is going on out there yet I didn't have to go deep into the wilderness to have this experience. I can just fit this into my lunch hour, you know? Mm -hmm. And that project with the Anchorage Museum is called Spark, right? Correct, yes. How did you come to start working on that or decide that you wanted to talk about forest fires through the expression of art? Well, it's going back a few years now and it's kind of a part of different ways in which landscape breaks down. And so um, one of the earlier pieces of that was looking at earthquakes. And so how does an earthquake actually create a kinetic component to a sculpture? So how do we look at a sculpture that actually becomes more unified when an earthquake hits? Um, And so from that, um, the the forest fire work came in. and just, just kind of thinking more broadly, you know, tsunamis, um, I have a piece that was just installed and it, it's an interesting context because it's an area that floods and it was a piece designed for a 100 year flood event, but now those 100 year flood events have become much bigger and much more frequent. Mm-hmm. So the sculpture was supposed to be just two or three feet of water, it's a 12 foot tall sculpture that was supposed to have two or three feet of water immersion. But now every 10 years, that sculpture is going to be completely underwater for a few days as it floods that area. So just how to make sculpture that directly engages these forces that we can then look at. So it's, it's, it's about thinking about those forces, relating our body to those forces, and then seeing the, the vestiges of, of how those forces played out. You know, I just wrote down something that you just said that might take us in a different direction, but I'll I'll bring us right back. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What did you mean by a structure becomes more unified when an earthquake hits? Ah, so um, it's pretty simple. The idea, you know, when we think of an earthquake, and I've been in a couple of earthquakes and imagine a lot of people in Alaska have been in them. Um, Mm -hmm. It, you you see things crack open and come apart into sections. So um, with a couple of the projects I've been working on, um, they're fragments. And when the forces of an earthquake hit, they literally start shimmying together and create a whole monolithic form from parts. So I'm just, I'm just inverting that logic. It's that, that simple.
Okay, so back to the forest fires. Why forest fires? Well, I've had personal experience, you know, with with being in environments where you you've got to kind of get out of there because the fire is coming, and then of course just being in forests, seeing these um, fires that have that have come through. Um, I find them formally gorgeous. I, I like the idea that they're necessary to the health of the forest, mm-hmm. um, so that we don't we don't just think of this as a, a, a bad thing. You know, with with forest ecology and our thinking has evolved, right? Where we just thought we needed to stop the forest fires and, and preserve certain areas instead of thinking more broadly about all of the landscape and it needing to burn some of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, I I guess. I, just from the really fundamental formal beauty, I started traveling to different forest fire sites just to sort of see what these trees had done and, and, and became more interested in what those forest fires did to the root structure of the trees than the trees themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a really beautiful burn probably 10 years ago um, in the Kaibab National Forest north of the Grand Canyon where the fire had been so intense that it completely... Uh, burned out all of the root structures and these were large trees so you could get down into that root ball void and see the negative space the empty space of where all those roots went for 10 15 20 feet into mm-hmm. the earth and just just formally how gorgeous that was it was like lava tube caves so you don't have any formal training in forest fires do you no no it's one of the real pleasures um I, you know, when I decided to go to art school and commit to being an artist, mm-hmm. um, I, I sort of felt, ah, but I'm not going to be able to, to, to do deep science. I'm not going to be able to, you know, launch into nuanced history courses. And, and I got to do a little bit of that. But what I love about making this art is that I, I choose a subject and then it, there's a built-in need for me to do all this study and mm-hmm. interviewing experts. And yeah. so I, I won't be any kind of specialist, but um, I definitely get to learn a lot and then benefit from the, the specialists themselves and their input. And and spending time with those people. So it's a really nice mix. Have you noticed that maybe you have a process or, you know, a common approach to these projects where, you know, you're starting out, you don't know anything, and then you start picking up these nuggets of information and then eventually you know quite a bit about it? Yeah, I think I think there's something to that. And it's also... What ends up happening over time is I'm exploring and researching a specific subject like the forest fire and I'm and I'm thinking about everything to do with that tree and then it then it becomes all about the roots and the rhizome and it, mm-hmm. it, it and and so I, I couldn't explore all those directions with the one project. So with each project you get five tangents you want to follow. Yeah, for so, sure. You, right? And then you've got <laughs> you have 25 of these tangents and so you've got little pieces of knowledge and I think that's where something interesting happened. So like with this, this burn project, I, I had this, this kind of aha moment where I realized that, a, that the, the, the shape and the, the structure of a, a crevasse field had something to do with the shape and structure of a, a, a burned, charred tree within its, in its um, root structure. So with this, I, I've made an initial sculpture for the Spark project called Burn. And it's, it's taking 
it's taking the kind of language of glaciers and applying it to the burning process. Mm -hmm. So it's that's a kind of a wonderful thing where you get these kind of disparate, or you think there are disparate aspects of our landscape and you bring them together. That, that's where all those tangents kind of start coming together in ways that I wouldn't have thought of until I'm deeply into it. You know, what's really great about that is um, that one thing leads to another. You know, mm -hmm. when I was younger and I wrote a lot of magazine articles and articles for newspapers, and one thing that I learned just for myself specifically was that if I was ever confused about a direction to go in, do another interview, <laughs> you know, and see where that leads me. Mm -hmm. And that that's, I don't know why I'm thinking of that as you were just talking, but that's where my mind went. So that's really fascinating to me because it's, it's about kind of how is failure useful? And, um, you know, and I mean, you're talking about grit, you're talking about a number of things, but it made me think about, about failure and, and how um, I sometimes worry as I move further into my career, I have less room for failure. Um, you know, I, I used to find I had the luxury, I had, a, I had this old uh, hotel with a lot of, I had like 80 hotel rooms in it as, as my studio space. And so I had the luxury of all of these extra rooms and I had a, a room of failure that I call, I called it my room of failure. So as, as pieces weren't going in the right direction, instead of throwing them out or repurposing them, I'd just go and I'd, I'd set that section of a sculpture in the room of failure and come back to it like a, like a year later. And, and usually it just, it was a failure and that's what it was. But sometimes you kind of come back to that and you realize there was something within that that was really interesting that you weren't seeing. Or, you know, like, like you, you, you do another interview and you actually realize what was going on in that earlier one that you could build on maybe. Well, and also a lot of times I realized that I was in a good spot. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't need to do that interview, but I had to do that interview to realize that. Interesting. So what was it like walking into that room? You know, as you say, the, the room of failures. You know, it was actually pretty wonderful. Um, it also helped that it wasn't public. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, maybe if it was like a window front store, that might be harder. But um, yeah, so it's, it's the luxury of, of being able to be in there by yourself or with some people that you trust and you know care about you and can kind of talk things through. That's even better. You know, that's interesting what you said about, you know, kind of out of the the gaze of like prying eyes. Mm -hmm. It's always interesting to to put a piece of art to the side and it just exists mm -hmm. and nobody can see it. You're the only person who's seen it. And so you don't have any of those opinions tainting your opinion. I think so. And I think maybe what I, because I've, I've got this model that I've used quite a bit where I'll complete something and then I put it in the landscape in a remote location, not meant for people to experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so the landscape does something to it for a couple of years and then I go retrieve it and then exhibit it. So it's almost like I'm giving the landscape that first um, opportunity to respond to it. How often does that improve the art? Always. It always does. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes it actually, um, I may have lost some things that way. So I shouldn't say always, but so long as there's still something left of it, it's usually more interesting than the tidy thing I started with, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because it, 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 it gives you clear, 
um, evidence of forces and that landscape, whether it's, you know, water coursing through it or, I mean, so many different things have impacted. I did a piece um, that I put under a tidal bay for a couple of years. And when I finally took it back out, it had oysters completely all over the surface of the sculpture. So I got to eat all those oysters, kind of had a formal feast with the piece and we all ate the oysters from the sculpture. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was tasty. (laughs) (laughs) Getting back to the Spark project, that project is connected to projects and studies in Australia and California. It is, yeah. So um, the first, the first kind of sculpture to come out of the Spark project, um, which I, I believe is going to go on view at the Anchorage Museum in August for the first time, um, that project, uh, that sculpture, was derived from these Tasmanian burns, and um, Tasmania has so Tasmania just the southernmost part, little island off of the main island of Australia. Um, has the largest trees in the world second just to the sequoia and redwood and they're deciduous so these eucalyptus are just giants you know these three to four hundred foot tall trees with you know crazy diameters Um, and a lot of these giants had just burned in a in a crazy event um, a year prior to my going so I I took a lot of the forms and documented those um, for that that piece and I realized that it wasn't so much the form of the tree that I wanted to look at, but the form between trees. Mm-hmm. And I also kind of wanted to layer that with the idea of the human body being between those trees, because I was, I was really interested in, in how do we bring our bodies into the environment. And in doing that, I think about wildfire fighters, um, where when they have a fire that turns on them and catches them unaware, and their last resort is to put one of these reflective blankets over their bodies and curl up in a ball mm-hmm. and let that force just go right over them. So I kind of brought those two sets of inspirations together for that, that first piece. When you're in Alaska in August, do you plan on burning any sculptures? Yes. So um, I'm sort of at the whim of, of what wildfire season is going to do, but so long as we have an active fire that we can get to um, and it's going to work logistically with those trying to put the fire out our our plan is to put a couple sections of um, they're really study sections because they're small Mm -hmm. right in the path of that that wildfire and if if that doesn't work a kind of plan b is to um, if there's a prescribed burn happening we'll put it in the path of the prescribed burn and then kind of plan c if if when I get there, um, happily, we don't have wildfires. Um, we'll probably go into a recent burn that's um, at a higher elevation that might be prone to a lightning strike, and we'll set these samples out. These samples that I'm putting out have a, they have both a steel and a concrete component as well as the wood. Mm-hmm. So, so they'll act as kind of lightning rods. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a long shot, but the idea that I might come back a year later and we might've gotten a lightning strike on some of those samples. A lot of the projects we've discussed so far in this conversation are pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about your art projects and the art projects you've been involved in, do any stories come to mind? Well, certainly with, with that intense piece, um, I, I had a mountaineering accident where I, 
uh, fell in a crevasse and I, I was working, I had two, two, we had two sets of rope teams. So we had six of us and, um, my companions set up a Z pulley system to get me out and they kind of botched it. We were pretty young (laughs) in terms of our skills. And so I ended up about 65 feet down into that crevasse before they got their act together and actually got me up. And when I was about 65 feet in, it was a huge crevasse and, and the fissure was narrow enough um, when I was at 65 feet that I could actually span both sides with my crampons and my feet. So um, I actually had slack on the rope, but I had arrested myself. So I wasn't going any further down. So I was just in a position for the first time, um, you know, within about a, a two hour experience of being in that crevasse, maybe an hour and a half of knowing I was going to be okay. Um, and just taking in the beauty of this, you know, blue cathedral that I was inside of. So I, I took that experience and made uh, a large scale sculpture where the viewer is in an, a very narrow sculpted corridor out of it was largely goat fur um so a little bit uncomfortable because it was narrow and you were brushing up against this goat fur and then there was a moment where video projections came through these walls which were translucent and really sort of i hope gave people a sense of a almost like being out in the stars so there were these sort of moving um sort of celestial forms so that you felt that you were in a wide open space. Mm-hmm. So the hope for me was that you kind of juxtapose a sense of, you know, oh shit, I'm, I'm in this, this accident with, I'm going to be okay. What am I learning from it? What's beautiful here? Mm-hmm. And how long did it take you to calm down and realize that you were going to be okay when you were in that crevasse? That was very fast. So there was the I'm slowly descending. Are they going to lose track of this rope? Um, that that experience was really fast. That's, that's just, I don't know, a couple of minutes. And then once I was under my own control and they had gotten the rope so that it was actually starting to, to pull back up again, I knew they'd get their act together. They'd get me up. Maybe I was a little naive because you know something could have cleaved off above me. But uh, at least for me, I felt like I went from, I don't know if I'm going to make it to I'll be just fine. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's be here now. What am I going to get from this? And, and I always know if I've done a better job of really being there at the moment, if I forget to take photos and video. <laughs> <laughs> How long did that take you to realize that even in these moments of, of high stress or even danger, like I still have a job to do? <laughs> well, there's always, there's always, thinking about it at the moment and that, and I see sparks of that. And then there's a lot of the right after, you know, so, and, and it comes to me with the right after immediately now, just because it's become a kind of modality. Um, but also I, I, you know, I also don't run into as many hair raising of, well, maybe that's not entirely true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll be a better back off that one. I still seem to go out there. It sounds like it's super important to have the right crew when you go out on certain projects. How much does that factor into, you know, the process of of putting these projects together and executing them? Interesting question. Um, yeah, because I don't know that I like how conscious I am of that criteria. Like it, it's much more about what is our conversation going to be like rather than skill sets, I guess. Um, I, I, 
I had a really wonderful recent trip out. There's a, a writer named Craig Childs who um, is a real, he's a poet, but he's also, um, in terms of his language and his writing, but he's also really knowledgeable about the Southwest landscape and the Canyon lands. And so going out with him, of course, I'm realizing being with him, he brings all this knowledge and, and route finding capacity and water finding skills, but that really wasn't the thinking. It was, it was much more about how am I going to hear from him, his experience of that landscape and how is that going to help shape my thinking about it? You know, how are we going to have a shared experience and, and, and how is he going to broaden my thinking about being in that landscape that was more important to me mm -hmm. than thinking about who am I with and are they going to be strong enough, skilled enough, you know, that that's less important. How do you think your retreats into nature shape your perspective and your work? Well, that's a big question. I, um, they're critical. Um, I think what I'm trying to change is to have them actually feel less like retreats and more like steady punctuation mm -hmm. and also less about an agenda. And again, more like a kind of a regular occurrence that you just kind of are nourished by. And that's easier said than done, especially because a lot of times, you know, I, I'm not just naturally going to Tasmania, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hike. It's expensive. Um, so, so there's got to be something that gets me to Tasmania. But then, you know, the, the burns were beautiful, but there were all these other things that happened there and, and things that happen when I just go walk outside my home, you know, that, that don't involve the exotic or the dangerous. And how do you think that those things coincide or if there's crossover between these situations that you get into, you know, mm -hmm. like the crevasse, mm -hmm. and then you're back to, you know, normal living and with a routine? And you know, how do those things mesh or do they butt heads or, you know, how do they fit in your mind? I think there's a balance where um, I I really love routine. I, I just got a dog six months ago, and I think the dog, because it she loves routine so much, has helped me realize how much I do. So, you know, I mean, just like the same thing. I could eat the same breakfast a year in a row, you know, that sort of thing. So there's that part of me where I really love knowing just what this day is going to look like. And then I, I kind of have to go completely into this other direction to balance it out where I, I go into this much more extreme, maybe dangerous, certainly unfamiliar um, settings. So I think it's balancing those two parts of my personality. Do you think that you, you personally need both? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Are there any moments in your life where you feel like you're lacking one or the other? Yeah, I mean, COVID really brought that home for me. Um, and it's not just COVID. I think there were there was sort of a combination of different factors. But I, for a good good year, I had much, much less time away from the built environment. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of funny because in a way you'd kind of think, like, for instance, my studio, my whole team, we had to close down for a couple of months. It would have been a perfect time to just head out into the mountains. But I, I just had all this responsibility with projects to keep them going. So having a year without that balance really underscored how much I, you know, I needed to make good work. 
has your work impacted your views of climate change at all? Oh yeah. Yeah. And then as I learn more and more about climate change, it impacts my desires for the kinds of projects. I mean, certainly for the burn project. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So that, that kind of goes both ways. And yeah, I mean, you know, when you're out amongst these burns doing this kind of research, it's, it really hits home. I mean, it's to see a a 2000 year old giant tree cored out from a a blaze that never should happen in a rainforest, Mm -hmm. you know? That's that's something. How do you convey a an experience like that in a way that it can be interpreted by anybody, whether they believe in climate change or not? Well, I think this brings us back to some of your earliest things that we were discussing, which has to do with the collaborative nature of all of this. I think that by having my my you know, inspiration and my specific draws and, and formal desires in terms of by formal, I just mean the form that it's going to be um, in talking that through with the people that are going to help me make it work structurally, the people that are going to help me build it, um, the people that are going to help me do the design work um, that they bring in their experiences of, of the subject matter, which is going to be different. Sometimes it will be um, less they might be less specific. They might not have had that time out in the burned forest, but maybe they've they've lived, you know, we're in a house that burned down. So you you just have all of these minds coming together. And I think that's that's where you end up with a better chance of relating to a wider group of people when it's made. Yeah, I think that every project benefits from having more eyes on it. Yeah. Yeah. And more hands in it mm-hmm. and more minds thinking it through. Yeah. How about human impact on the environment? So that's a big one for me um, in a couple of different ways. Like I, I think about just personally, what is my impact on it? I think about what is the impact of this sculpture? You know, so that sort of drives a lot of like why I want to use salvage materials, why I put solar panels up so my studio actually runs off of solar power. Um, you know, some of those kind of practical decisions but um, I, it, it gets a little darker for me when I think about what humanity's doing. Um, and and there's, there's a big vein of optimism, I find, in thinking about how we can kind of adjust and fix a lot of what we've done and what our ancestors have done. So I, I do think we can, we can fight this. I just think we have to band together and, and make it happen. You said that it gets a little dark when Mm -hmm. you think of the human impact. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a little more? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I've had real despair when I'm out in environments that are being just wrecked. And when I, when I read people's accounts that, that are really um, moving in terms of, of what's happening to our environment and even just seeing in the, the lifespan that I've had where I go and I see, landscapes that were different than they are now it's really heartbreaking Mm -hmm. um and i don't i don't really make work out of that sort of heartbreak um but i it's usually more you know if i when i think of these these burned giants in tasmania it's a heartbreaking landscape or i was in in vietnam and there was a a forest, a young forest. And I'm, and I'm talking to this indigenous guy who's describing these old growth trees that used to be there. 
Um, so whether I can imagine something beautiful and, and juxtapose it with what's there and think about how we might get back to that beauty, um, that, that's one way of, of doing it. Um, or, or maybe it's, it's, it's actually looking at what is still um, fertile you know, what is still possible. So in, in, a, in a big burned forest, that is making room for, for new trees, you know? Mm-hmm. When you're finished with a project, are you able to, to look back on it and appreciate it? Or are you only able to see areas where you could have improved? That's a great question. I, that's, that's where drawing comes in for me. So I, I do some preparatory drawings and just, you know, drawings that are structural and useful, but drawings that I think of as pieces of art usually come after a project so that I can kind of process what I think mattered in the creation of the piece and what was both left out and, and what was most important. Mm -hmm. And so there's usually a couple of drawings where I, I process that. And that's, I think, the most meaningful part for me. So earlier you said that you have less room for failure as you get older. Could you talk about that a little more? Maybe when did you start thinking about that? Well, there was a, a kind of poignant moment, maybe hmm, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that, where one of the, the guys, an artist, young artist who is um, working as one of my assistants, he just kind of said, John, what's it like to make things knowing everything you're making is going to be seen. And I thought that was a really interesting question because I hadn't really even considered it because I was getting used to everything I made being seen. And, and that kind of tied into failure for me. And it's, if you know everything's gonna be viewed and seen, and especially if it's gonna be seen by maybe large groups of people, large numbers of people, it's a lot harder to take risks in a certain way. It's like you, you have all these interested parties that are believing in you because of what you've done in the past and you don't want to make a failure for those people. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I am fortunately exploring the realm of failure. How do things fall apart? Um, but they still have to fall apart or disintegrate or go away in an interesting way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's not something I've reconciled. I, um, I, I do try to do small studies and tests in my small studio that I'm not sharing or that I'm sharing much later mm -hmm. so that I, I, I can go down some roads. And then I also have a whole lot of trust with the people that I work with. And I'm, I'm open with people that come in and volunteer or intern to the point where I, I can say, all right, this is failing. We got to change course. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to actually pause here and and rethink this piece and 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 that's also for me it's really interesting i don't want to make sculptures that are designed and then built and it's it's one of the important reasons i work with a team and it's all in-house as opposed to you know other artists might design something and then you you send it to a fabricator um, i like to be able to leave a lot unfinished in the thinking of a piece until you're halfway through with it mm -hmm. and and so you need to have that needs to be in-house and you need to, to be making that with people that you can have a lot of trust with and that you want to give agency to. So that's a, an important piece for me. So I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but you seem like a contemplative guy. 
So mm -hmm. I'm going to throw it at you. <laughs> sure. No, no problem. What's something, maybe an idea or a realization that you've come to in the past year? Well, I think there's quite a bit. I mean, and a lot of it is because of, of the COVID sort of rearranging things like where, where my studio just stopped. Um, I don't, it's been at least 10 years where I've been under constant work pressure into all of a sudden not have a group of people to be making sure everything's on track with. Um, that really opened up some time for me to sort of say, why am I making certain choices? Um, is this what I want to keep doing for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Um, and I don't know if I had clear sort of revelations or answers to those things, but at least I think I had enough of a pause to say, I need to think this through. And I think this is a kind of very practical thing, but it's, it's one thing I realized. And, and that is that I've been allowing things to happen to me. So when I think about projects, the projects I take on are projects that people have come to me and said, would you like to do this? Mm -hmm. You know, um, instead of me going out and saying, I would really like to do a show. I, I really want to create a sculpture for a train station, for example, or I want to show in this museum. I'm, I'm not going out there and deciding where I want to do things. It, it, it's coming to me. And, and I think I, I, I think it's pretty interesting to have things come to you. Um, but I think I, I need to be more intentional um, about some of the framework for where these projects are going. And, and it's a whole lot less practical, right? I mean, if you to go and approach somebody and say, you really need a sculpture here. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how well that's going to work, but I, I think it's something I've realized I need to do. So that that's a tangible one to that question. Yeah. I think that this pandemic, it's, it's really interesting and scary and disorienting when everything we know is taken from us. And then, you know, as we're going through it, we're just going through it. Mm -hmm. And then now, you know, fingers crossed, we are nearing the end of it. I hope, mm -hmm. we hope. Mm -hmm. um, but we can look back on all that with a little bit of hindsight at least and think, I'm a different person. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we've understood some new things about the people in our lives probably. Mm -hmm. And, and, and may, I also am aware of how different my life is than a lot of people who are impacted more profoundly. You know, I think about people, people, especially in, in service sector jobs and in healthcare, you know, where they just had to keep on moving in a way that a lot of us didn't. Well, John, that, does it for my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think you, you covered so much. It was such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. 
Music was produced by Keezy Baby.